sometimes the people who are there for you are not the people that you expect to be there for you. And it can be really hard when you have one person that you're like, that's the one who's going to support me. And then they don't. That can be really difficult. But then there's other people who will surprise you by giving you their full like love and support, which is like what their mom does. Bienvenidos to Los Bookies Podcast, a podcast for queer Latina bookworms who love queer Latina stories. We are your hosts, Adrian Gassan Garcia, a.k.a. AGG, and Sergio Lopez. This is our official season two kickoff, and we are thrilled to have Sonora Reyes joining us today. Born and raised in Arizona, Sonora Reyes is the author of contemporary young adult novels, The Lesbiana's Guide to Catholic School, and The Luis Ortega Survival Club. They write fiction full of queer and Latinx characters in a variety of genres, with current projects in both kitlet and adult categories. Sonora is also a co-founder of QPOC Fest, a virtual book festival celebrating queer and trans BIPOC authors and books. Outside of writing, Sonora loves dancing, singing karaoke, and playing with their baby nibblings. A debut novel about a queer Mexican-American girl navigating Catholic school while falling in love and learning to celebrate her true self. 16-year-old Yamile Flores prefers to be known for a killer eyeliner, not for being one of the only Mexican kids at her new, mostly white, very rich Catholic school. But at least here, no one knows she's gay, and Yami intends to keep it that way. After being outed by her crush and ex-best friend before transferring to Slayton Catholic, Yami has new priorities. Keep her brother out of trouble, make her mom proud, and most importantly, don't fall in love. Granted, she's never been great at any of those things, but that's a problem for future Yami. The thing is, it's hard to pick being straight when Bo, the only openly queer girl at school, is so annoyingly perfect and smart and talented and cute. So cute. Either way, Yami isn't going to make the same mistake again. If word got back to her mom, she could face a lot worse than rejection. So she'll have to start asking WWSGT, what would a straight girl do? Welcome, Sonora. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Before we start, Sonora, I actually wanted to start because I love your name, Sonora. It's such a great, strong name. Is there a story behind it or are you just named after the state of Sonora, which is right across from Arizona? So my name is, it's actually a funny story because Sonora, everyone does associate as the state in Mexico or like the desert or, you know, there's a lot of like things people think of when they hear my name, but my mom actually got it from a movie. Like there was a, like a white girl in a movie named Sonora and it was spelled different, but like she made it like more like Mexican, I guess. But (laughs) yeah, it was, uh, she really liked the name. It's a beautiful name. Thank you so much. So before we get started, Sonora, I would actually love for you to read an excerpt from The Lesbiana's Guide to Catholic School. Yes. Okay. We get to the festival and Bo's parents are two of only a handful of white people. And for once, it's not my turn to be uncomfortable. I'm with my people now. It's not that I want them to be uncomfortable. Actually, I really don't want them to be uncomfortable. I'm just sick of being the one to shoulder the uncomfortability of every situation so other people can feel like everything is normal. This is my normal. Everyone is smiling right now and I can breathe. It's not like I need their approval, but it's nice to see Bo and her parents enjoying themselves. After everything they've done for me, I want to give something back. I want them to fall in love with the colors and the music and the clothes and the dancing the way I did when I was little. I used to do baile folklorico. 
My mom signed me up when I was young, and I still regret quitting to this day. I don't think I was any good at it, but I was five, so no one was. I always felt so beautiful tapping my feet and swinging my skirt around my waist. That was how I learned to stand straight and smile and look presentable, which ironically is why some people used to tell me I act white. But the people who taught me to dance are the same people who taught me about the cultures of our indigenous ancestors. I know a lot of baile folklorico came out of a mixture of Spanish and indigenous cultures and dances. I'm fully aware that the standing up straight and the smiling might have been more from the Spanish side. But baile folklorico isn't all about the posture and the smiles. It's about the music, the colors, the dance. It's a dance of Mexican pride, my people, my heart. I may not know the languages of my ancestors. I may not know much about them at all. Colonization will do that to a people. But when I'm watching my people dance, when I see my own skin on the stage, there's something about the joy on their faces and in their bodies that feels ancient somehow. And I feel like my ancestors have been with me all along. I can almost see them here dancing with us. What I love about this section, Sonora, is that it really captures how much pride Yami has in her culture and in her identity. And it's one of the few moments that she feels comfortable sharing it with other people. And I, I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about what inspired this scene and what you were hoping that the reader would get out of it. Yeah, so I I love Baile Folklorico. I think it's so beautiful. And so like, this is how I feel about the dance, right? Like I was just putting my feelings onto Yami about Baile Folklorico. And I feel like this scene bleeds into a lot of feelings between Yami and Bo and their own cultures and how they feel about their heritage. Where for anyone who doesn't know, Bo is Chinese, but she's adopted by white parents. So she has this distance from her heritage, right? Her roots that she doesn't she doesn't know too much about what would have been her culture. <clears throat> and Yami has been around people like her her whole life but her dad was the main one who would teach her about like her indigenous heritage because her dad's indigenous and once he left because he got deported then she felt like she lost like a piece of her heritage like she felt like she's less indigenous now that her dad's gone and so they kind of bond over feeling this distance from their heritage. And I wanted to like explore that because I felt that with a lot of other people, like a lot of people of color, I feel like have an experience with that. Even if we're around people like us all the time, even if we grow up with our culture, like I feel like colonized people have this distance from history that like we don't always get to explore and there is pain associated with that and so I I wanted to like explore that a little bit through Yami and have Bo share like her experience as well of how they can kind of relate to each other in that way yeah it's it's a very enjoyable read I'm a big fan of YA novels so it's like an easy read right but there was so much to unpack so many layers what was your inspiration or how did this book come together yeah so I it's actually a funny story because I wrote fan fiction before I ever wrote anything original. And I remember it was November, which is National Novel Writing Month, which is the goal. Uh, it's like a, a big thing that like everyone who wants to write a book 
can do it in the month of November. And you have 30 days to write 50,000 words. That's the challenge. And all of my like fan fiction friends were going to try writing original novels. And I was like feeling left out. So I was like, okay, I'll do it. I had always wanted to write an original novel. I just, all my ideas were so big. So all my ideas were like this big, like fantasy, like epic fantasy story or like a sci-fi that takes place like a space opera. All these things that take so much world building and so much like pre-planning. You can't just start writing that. Um, and it was October like 28th or 27th or something when I decided to write a book. <laughs> so it was real close to November. I had three days to plan what I was going to write. And I was like, I can't do a fantasy or a sci-fi book. I have to write something that I know. So I decided to to take the easy route because I thought it would be easy to write something from my own experience. I know what it was like to go to Catholic school. I know what it was like to be like a closeted queer kid growing up. I know what it was like to have that religious trauma and all of that. So I was like, I'm going to write about Catholic school. That'll be easy, right? It was not easy. It was really hard because you have to like unpack all your trauma. But it ended up being my first book and it was my first published book. And I'm really glad that I had that limitation put on me because I would never have unpacked so much of my own feelings if I hadn't been not allowed to explore the fantastical stuff because I didn't have time. So, yeah. But that stuff will come eventually. <laughs> it seems like in a way this writing was very therapeutic for you too, right? To oh, yeah. To help like go back and reconcile with that. And what I love about this book is earlier when you read the excerpt, you like capture the love and appreciation and pride that we have with Latinidad, Mexican culture, dance. And Yami's kind of like learning that too about being queer. And one thing that, that I found really fascinating is that you really explore what it means to be queer and Mexican, Latina, and that relationship with church and religion. And you offer different perspectives. We just don't get Yami's point of view. We also hear what it means for Cesar to go through his coming out story, what it means for Mrs. Flores, her mom. Why was it important for you to make religion a central part of the theme, but not only make it a central part of the theme, but offer different perspectives from different lenses? I feel like Catholicism specifically is so big with Mexicans, <laughs> unlike m much of Latin America, right? I feel like it was important to me to show both how that can be a bad thing, but also how it is so ingrained in our culture that it doesn't necessarily feel like you can just separate from it, even if it for Yami causes a lot of internalized guilt and trauma and stuff like that. But like for her brother, he really identifies with his faith and has mo and their mom really identifies with her faith. And Bo even, Bo, the love interest, she's the only openly lesbian, only openly queer person at their school and she is super catholic she uses bible verses to like argue with the priest about whether it's okay to be gay right like she knows her stuff she knows the bible in and out because she's been to catholic school her whole life and she doesn't feel a problem with it so i kind of wanted to show like the different perspectives of that because for me i'm not catholic anymore i grew up catholic and I have a lot of pain associated with Catholicism, but it's such a close 
part of so many people that I love and so many of my loved ones and family members. And I, I guess I'm trying to, in this book, show, I'm trying to understand them and show a little bit of humanity and why they feel the way they do about it. I also feel like with present day, like Mexican culture in general is very rooted in the indigenous and Spanish influence. And those two feel like for a lot of us who I'm mixed, right? So a lot of us who are mixed, it, it could feel like those two influences are at odds with each other, like the Catholicism versus the indigenous spiritual practices or whatever. But I've, in my experience, the way that at least my family and my like the, my Mexican peers practice Catholicism is different from how Spaniards practice Catholicism. It has those indigenous influences. I, I didn't want anyone who is Catholic or is very strong in their faith to pick up my book and be offended because it was like so disrespectful to the Catholic faith. Even if my personal experience with Catholicism is a negative one, that's not true for a lot of other people. So I, I wanted it to be nuanced in that way because I'm really close to people who, who love their faith. So I, I didn't want to like disrespect them. Yeah, I think you definitely captured the elements of hypocrisy in the Catholic church. But I also, uh, my takeaway from the book was Yami goes through it, right? She's struggling with her sexual identity. Her best friend writes her out. She's taking care of her brother. Her dad is deported. Her mom also has a clear preference for Cesar. You know, her family's struggling financially. She's going to a new school. When you wrote it, or maybe after you wrote it, were you more empathetic for Yami? Or you're like, oh, this is, I'm, I'm going to make her go through it. I wrote this book more for myself, like for my inner teenager, right? Than for publishing. I didn't even have publishing in mind when I wrote it. It was very much to heal myself. And in order to heal myself, I needed to put a lot of those hard things in the book so that I could see someone who went through similar things that I went through come out okay on the other side and have that happy, perfect ending, the love story that works out and everything that they want, like everything like is in grasp. So that was for me, right? <laughs> and I do think that it resonates with a lot of people being able to see like someone who struggles still have that happy ending because I, I know that sometimes as marginalized and traumatized people, we sometimes crave those like purely happy stories where nothing bad happens. And it's just, you know, a beautiful rom-com. It's silly. It's fun. It's joyful and, and no trauma, nothing bad. And those are necessary too. But I feel like sometimes you have to be able to see yourself in it and you have to be able to see, you have to be able to relate in order to feel like that happy ending is within your grasp. Because if it's only happy and nothing else, like I can't relate to it. And I don't feel like it's a story that I could have, right? But if, it, if I'm seeing a story where this person struggles and this person goes through all these things that like I feel are close to me, then that feels like that happy ending is within my reach. There's this really beautiful moment on page 104 where Cesar and Yami come out to each other. And it's centered around in Lakich. Is, is that how you pronounce in it? In Lakesh, yeah. Lakesh. Can you talk a little bit more about in Lakesh and what inspired it to show up at this novel? 
And I want to know, like, why was it important that both Cesar and Yami be queer? The phrase in like ish, uh, it, it's um, something that I grew up with, right? Like I always had heard this this phrase along with the poem, The Code of the Heart, which is in the book. But the poem is basically saying how I treat other people is how I treat myself, how I feel about myself. And Cesar and Yami use that phrase as uh, almost like a, like, because they grew up with it too. So it's like how they say, oh, same, right? Like, you are my other me. Like, I, uh, you are me, I am you. I see you kind of thing. So, and, and they are very casual about it. So they see each other as like a mirror to themselves, right? So I, I really wanted to show that they are so similar, even if they feel, even if they're treated so differently, even if their mom sees them in different respects, like he is so smart and good at school and like all these things. And Yami struggles with that. She's never been naturally good at school. They they have different experiences, but they are the same. Like they are each other's mirror, right? And they see themselves in each other. So I think when they come out to each other, they realize that it goes even deeper than they thought. And it's just this moment of like them realizing, oh my gosh, yeah, like you are my other me. Like we are the same. I I see you. I understand you. We're not alone in this. And I really wanted to show a sibling duo who are both queer because I feel like a lot of queer stories center around like there's one in the family, right? Or if, if it's not just one, it's like a cousin or an uncle or something. But it's actually really common for siblings to both or all be like me and my siblings i feel like it's so common within immediate families i know a lot of queer people who have queer siblings right and i don't know what it is if it's genetic or what <laughs> but like <laughs> um i think that we influence each other so much in our upbringing and the things that we care about and our outlook on life and what we're comfortable talking about and i think it's something that I really wanted to show like a sibling duo and they're both queer and like they, it's okay. And like, it's not seen as like, I feel like there's this uh, thought that if you have like multiple queer characters in one story, besides the main character in the love interest, that's like, Oh, you're just like putting in like the diversity points. You're just trying to like make everyone queer and it's so unrealistic or whatever. But like literally all my friends are queer. Like I don't, no straight people. <laughs> yeah, no, I actually found it very relatable because I actually come from a gay-ass family. Um, nice. I have, um, I think, like, five, seven gay lesbian cousins. So, like, we all grew up together, and we've been very gay-friendly. I'll say that. Nice. <laughs> it's so funny, too, because also, this is to prove your point, Sonora, but my brother and I, he's 11 months older than me. We're both gay. He's married. Yeah. Yeah, like, And it's just so funny because this is not unrealistic. And what yeah. I what I love about this queer relationship is that in relation to each other, they've come to learn to accept their own queerness and realize that it's not bad because they love each other, right? So if they love each other, that means that they have to love themselves exactly. fully because you know, being queer is not bad because their brother's gay or like, you know, his sister's gay. Exactly. Yeah. That's something that Cesar, I think, struggles more with than Yami. Like he's got a lot of internalized guilt and he is really going through some, which is, which is kind of ironic because he's the one who's in like a relationship, who's been in a relationship for so long, but he is internalized all these 
feelings about it and he feels like he's you know doing something wrong whereas like yami has to show him right like hey look i know you love me and like I am, you know, gay. And <laughs> I know that because you love me and you don't think that I am an abomination or whatever, like, how can you think that about yourself? But like, she has to drill that into him as like, I know that you love yourself because you love me. So like, you can't, you can't have these. And like, like of course we all struggle with, with negative thoughts, but she like calls him out on it. And it's like, it's like, almost because he's the one who's super into the poem like he's the one who has it plastered on their bathroom mirror like it's not her like she sees it all the time because of him so she has to like bring the poem back sometimes for him yeah one of the things that i thought you did so well on capturing the sentiment of lgbtq youth is the fear of homelessness because it's like Yami's biggest fear that her mom's going to kick her out. So she's working really, really hard to save money. And, you know, studies have shown there's an over-representation of LGBTQ youth who are experiencing youth homelessness. So I'm glad that you captured that. But why was it crucial for you to um, capture that element? Yeah, I feel like it's just so real that before you're out to your parents... You don't know how they're going to react unless they talk about it, unless you have someone else in your life who you can point to as, oh, this is how they reacted to that person. But she doesn't have that. All she has are the interactions she's had with her mom through either Catholicism and what they say about homosexuality or through her mom's like, you know, they're watching it and two women kiss and she's like, ah, oh, it's like, don't look, it's, it's inappropriate so that's her experience with how her mom feels about homosexuality so she's like yeah she might kick me out of course she won't be okay with it and so she's gonna grapple with that fear which i think is so common for people who just like whose families don't talk about it who it's not like you know like for me growing up, I always knew that I was queer, but I didn't know it was weird until I was older. <laughs> I didn't know it was like not normal. <laughs> but I feel like you always have this uncertainty about it with the parents because you don't know how they're going to react. And like they control everything when you're a kid, right? Like they, you don't have your own freedom. You can't just be who you are. You have to make sure that they're okay with it. So I think it's a, it's a, I don't want to say it's universal, but it's so common to just have that fear. Even if your parents are very loving and even if they are really accepting, you wouldn't know until you talk about it. So, no, you're so right. It does make, it made me reflect on like how I grew up. And it is something like a topic we never covered. Even though I came from a gay ass family, we just never talked about LGBTQ issues. And you just do have, I always say my argument has always been like Latina families, Latina parents in particular, you tip the wings of the LGBTQ kids. You know, they never let us like soar, which is really awful. Yeah, I, I will say, I feel like there is so much, at least with my family, we've grown together a lot over the years because <laughs> like it wasn't always good as far as the relationship because of the queerness and stuff. But like, so much better now. I just want to say for any like young people or anything who who are thinking that the way it is now is how it's always going to be like there. There's some room for growth sometimes. And 
sometimes people can change, even if it feels so impossible. And it, it's interesting because you do see each character grow in a way. By the end of the novel, there's this beautiful moment when the mom does like a coming out party with Bandulce that's rainbow <laughs> color. Like, and it's like, she's doing it the way that, that she can. Yeah. And so you see Yami grow, you see Cesar grow, you see the, the Mrs. Flores grow, but the dad kind of takes a step back. And I was wondering why that was important to, to make sure that you see characters, some characters move forward, but others who are kind of still a bit, a bit lost or... I think sometimes the people who are there for you are not the people that you expect to be there for you. And it can be really hard when you have one person that you're like, that's the one who's going to support me. And then they don't. That can be really difficult. But then there's other people who will surprise you by giving you their full like love and support, which is like what their mom does. Like she struggles because she she has to grapple with the idea because she loves her kids, right? She also loves her faith. And there's a line when, like, after, you know, she's like, if the Bible tells me that I shouldn't love my kids, then the Bible is wrong. <laughs> and that's her moment of, like, I have to, I have to love my kids. I have to support them. And she's not giving up her faith, right? She's still Catholic at the end of the book. She's just learned that there's more to it than. It's not as black and white. And she has a lot of growing to do throughout the book. And with her dad, I feel like she saw him as like this idealized version of what a father could be, right? Because he's so far away, they only talk over the phone or FaceTime. And so a lot of her relationship with him is her putting him on a pedestal of like what she wants him to be. And it turns out he's not actually as great as she thinks. And I just kind of wanted to show that like people surprise you, but it's okay because then the people who you think weren't going to be there, they show up sometimes and it's a give and take. Last question on the book then. At the end of the novel, there's this great quote where Miami says, I realize I'm not surviving anymore. I'm dancing and laughing and living. And I just wanted to um, get in your thought as to why it was important to title the book about surviving and then ending it with living? I think that for a lot of us, surviving is all we ever can imagine ourselves doing. We're just getting through day by day. We are trying our hardest and we are surviving. And it's it's this struggle, right? It's this hard thing that that is a it's a victory every day that we survive, but it's not easy. It's something that we're not necessarily, you don't enjoy surviving, right? It's, it's work. And I think the goal that we might not even see as the goal, because the goal is to not die. But I think there's a hidden goal that like would be amazing that I think is the ideal situation is to get out of that state of constant danger where we don't have to survive anymore. We can just live and we can enjoy our life and we can be happy and dance and love who we love and sing and just live. That's the goal for me. <laughs> um, and I feel like I, I wanted to show like a story progress from surviving to just living and being happy. 
Now we want to pivot to our next section, which is called Chismeando con Sonora, where we get to learn a little bit more about you as a person. So first question is, when did you first realize that language has power? Growing up, like I didn't think that I was smart enough to participate in storytelling and books and that kind of thing. You know, I'm autistic. I was always autistic. Like I was not a good student. I was, I struggled really hard in school. I never saw books as something that I was allowed to partake in because it was embarrassing, right? Like when you get called on to read in front of the class and you can't, you can't read it. You're so slow and everyone's waiting for you to get to the point and it's embarrassing, right? It's like humiliating. That's how I felt. And I thought that it was just not for me. It wasn't until I discovered fan fiction that I was like, oh, I'm allowed to partake in this. I am allowed to read these stories and enjoy them because they're not academic. There are stories that I'm allowed to tell that I'm allowed to read and enjoy reading. It started with reading, not writing. I was just like really into fan fiction because I saw myself in it. I feel like fan fiction is super dominated by like queer stories and neurodivergent stories and like all that um, because people, I think this is my theory. I don't actually have proof, but I think that people who are pushed out of mainstream literature, especially back then, you know, 10 plus years ago, however long ago, because now it's getting better. Like there's more diverse literature coming out, but for a while it was all cis straight white men. And that was all we could read about. So fan fiction was a space where you could, you could see a character in a show and be like, I, as a queer person, relate to that guy. And so to me, he's queer and he's autistic. And like, I can write him as that and no one's going to tell me I can't. This is my story now. And and this character, because I said so, is autistic and queer. And so it was the first time that I felt like I could really relate to characters that I loved, even if they weren't written to be queer or neurodivergent or disabled. I still felt like, I could relate and I still felt like I was allowed to make them how I wanted them to be. <laughs> and then it, I guess in the challenge of writing my own book, I was like, you know what? I'm going to write somebody like me. I wasn't writing. Like I said, I wasn't writing for publication. I was writing for myself. It just kind of blossomed from from fan fiction, really. <laughs> There's this very famous Spanish dicho that goes, Dime con quien andas y te diré quien eres. Help us understand who you are by telling us who your people are. Yeah, so I didn't do this on purpose, but all my friends are neurodivergent and queer. It wasn't a conscious choice. It's just I think those are the people who like tolerate me. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I find a huge community within like the queer and neurodivergent space. I feel like very seen by them, especially my neurodivergent friends. Like I feel like we're on the same page about like there's no judgment as far as how we view the world and how we act and stuff that other people might think is weird. Yeah, I think I have like a lot of different groups of friends, but they're all neurodivergent. <laughs> That's amazing. That's so beautiful. Thank you. So, Sonora, I know that you're from Arizona. Can you tell us where exactly you grew up and how was it growing up in Arizona? Yeah, I still live here. I grew up in Tempe. I live in Tempe still. All my family lives here. I've been here my whole life. It's hot. <laughs> it's really hot. So there's that. But 
you know, I really like Arizona. Like I feel like a big connection to probably just because all my family lives here and I really love the people here. When did you first realize you were queer? I kind of always knew. I just didn't, like I said, I didn't know it was not normal. My first crush was on a girl and I, my first kiss was with a girl. I was like eight years old when I had my first kiss with a girl. <laughs> so I was like, I mean, it was like normal to me. I was like, this is, this is just part of, I like girls. It was never something that I questioned. It was just always there. And then it wasn't until, I don't even remember when I realized it was like not normal, probably from hearing my dad talk about it in a negative way. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> but it's always been there for me. I wasn't attracted to a boy until I was 17. So I identified as a lesbian for like most of my adolescent years. Can you tell us about the first time you were in a queer space? It was actually recent, like within the recent years. Like I've been in queer friendly spaces before, but never a space dedicated to queerness until there. I'm going to shout out my favorite coffee shop. It's called Brick Road Coffee. It's in Tempe, Arizona. It is like a queer owned coffee shop where like you walk in and there's just like flags. There's the progress flag, there's trans flags, there's like rainbow flags. Everything is queer. There's like a mural with two guys and it's run by like a married gay couple. I love them so much. They're very sweet. And that was my first time going to a place where I was like, oh, this place is for me. Like this is, this is for me. It's such a beautiful space. They have a lending library of queer books. So anyone can bring a book and just drop it off and then someone else can take it. And the li the library there, it's just like one bookshelf right on the side of the shop. And it's grown so much because when I first started going, it was a couple of years ago, like you know, after the vaccine came out when people started going out again. That's when I went. And from then until now, like the library has grown so much. Like it used to be just one shelf. And now it's a whole bookshelf. They had to get another bookshelf. It's awesome. Like people are just bringing books and yeah. That's beautiful. AGG, we need yeah. to go. Yes. When we're in Tempe. Yeah, yeah. Come to Brick Road. Now's the time to play a quick little game of Rapiditas. In this section, Sergio will ask you a total of 10 questions, and you'll need to answer the first thing that comes to mind. Do not overthink. Just answer as honestly as you can. Thinking back, what was the first book that got you in your feelings? I would say Labyrinth Lost by Zoraida Cordova. What was the weirdest thing you've Googled for the sake of research while writing a book? So not for any of my published stuff, because my published stuff is contemporary. So there's not really that much weird stuff you Google for that. But like I said, I do like have ideas about other genres. I did Google how much a severed head weighs, like how heavy it is. <laughs> if your book had a soundtrack, which three songs would definitely be on it? I actually have a Spotify playlist for the Lesbianas Guide to Catholic School. <laughs> I think the top three songs that really encompass the book are Take Me to Church by Hozier, Sleepover by Haley Kiyoko, and Sinners by Lauren Aquilina. So you got paid. What did you do with your first advance? My dream ever since I was like young is like, if I'm ever rich, I'm going to be the person who just like, 
funds people's GoFundMes or whatever. And I did that. When I first got my first check, I like went on Twitter and I was like, what's the first GoFundMe I see? And I, I saw someone was like, uh, needing some money for top surgery. And I just like fully funded it. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> um, so that was always my dream to be able to like fully fund a GoFundMe. And that's what I did. So, <laughs> As a writer, what does success look like to you? I feel like being able to express myself through my stories and have people resonate with it. Like it, it's affecting people that's not just me. What is your favorite word? It can be in Spanish, Spanglish or English or any other language. <laughs> I guess it's Spanglish. Ufale. <laughs> I just think it's fun. <laughs> what book did you read that you wish you had written? The Hunger Games. If you weren't a writer, what would you be doing? I would be on disability. Because <laughs> that's what I was doing before I was, before I was writing. <laughs> what is one of your hot takes? Unpopular opinions. Unpopular opinion. Um, all my opinions are popular. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, fan fiction is a valid form of literature. Your book gets adapted into a movie. Who do you cast to play Yami? Who will play Cesar? Who plays Bo? And can I play Doña Violeta? <laughs> yes you can um, yeah I, I would probably cast if I was in charge of casting I would cast unknowns right just up and coming people that I've never heard of who fit perfectly the, the role but that was question number 10 thank you so much for playing that was amazing I do have a few follow up questions first off use ufale in a sentence for, for our listeners okay it's a conversation between two people uh Someone's like, oh, man, we both just bombed that test. Oof, Oof father. Yeah. No, that's <laughs> like, beautiful. And then how much does a severed head weigh? It's five kilograms or 11 pounds. Interesting. Um, <laughs> and then did you connect with the person that you did the GoFundMe that, that you offset the, the cost for the top surgery? I didn't. I, I did it like the, I don't know if GoFundMe, I did it the anonymous way, but I don't think it's anonymous to the person i think they still see your name but um i don't remember connecting with them i was just like hopefully they don't know who i am i also love the hunger games i thought the hunger games is a great trilogy i mean it's like the book that i bought for my nephew or my little brother uh one of them years ago because it's such a fun read this, that's actually so the fun. book that got me into ya novels nice um yeah. i i want to write i'll just tell you it's probably not going to happen for a really long time but I want to write a Hunger Games-esque book, but it's like very Mexican. So it's like, um, like the, the, the Spaniards are the capital, basically. Like, I want to do like that. So that oh, I can't wait to read it. I'm so yeah. excited for it. That sounds, that sounds <laughs> so brilliant. Yeah. So we're heading up close to time, but we want to know what are you currently reading or if you have any recommendations on other books or authors to follow? I am currently reading nothing published. I'm reading for blurbs right now. So like unpublished stuff that's going to come out within the next year um, so that I can, you know, write a little blurb that it was a good book and put put it on the back of the book. I would say keep a lookout for This Is Me Trying. It comes out in April by uh, Raquel Marie, who wrote Ophelia After All and You Don't Have a Shot. This is me trying. I read for a blurb and it is so beautiful. I cried on like page five. Like it's like a, it's like a beautiful book that deals with grief in a very like sensitive way. I really loved it. So I would look out for that book in April. 
Awesome. And where can folks find more of you and your work? So my website is sonorareyes.com. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Blue Sky. If you just look Sonora Reyes, it'll probably be the only one. <laughs> and yeah, I have two books out. I have The Lesbianas Guide to Catholic School and The Luis Ortega Survival Club is my second book. And hopefully more to come in the future. <laughs> Sonora, before we let you go, we have one final question. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the holiday Dia de los Muertos, but it is a time when we like to celebrate death and the loved ones who have passed. In an attempt to change our relationship with the inevitable, we'd like to ask our guests the following question. And please note that this is not meant to be morbid. Let's say that you're tasked with writing your final literary piece of work, and it so happens to be your obituary. How does the opening line read? Yeah, so I don't want anyone to be sad when I die. So I want to make them laugh. So I'll say, here lies Sonora Reyes, the eternal procrastinator who finally ran out of time. <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> they will be like, your friends will be like, and that's a Sonora we know. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Sonora. It was such a great pleasure chatting with you today. This was very fun. I appreciate you having me on. Be sure to follow Sonora on Instagram at sonora.reyes. And also be sure to like, follow, comment, subscribe to Los Bookies Podcast. Hasta luego, bookworms!